You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. I'd like to acknowledge that M Pavilion exists on the stolen land of the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and we pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. Welcome everyone to How and Why to Prioritize Human First Storytelling. This is a special collaboration between M Pavilion and EST Media. My name is Andrew Yee. I am an Australian-based lead producer at EST Media. Um, I was going to explain what EST does, but I'm going to be doing a lot of talking tonight. So I thought, why not let a trailer explain it instead? So we have a quick little trailer. The title of this evening is How and Why to Prioritize Human Storytelling First. And this is a question that we at EST are constantly asking ourselves, and we're trying to answer through the content we make and the documentaries we produce. Tonight we'll be exploring the complex relationship between diversity, representation, and storytelling. And I'm joined on stage by an amazing group of panelists. Um, firstly, would you like to introduce yourselves to the crowd and then we can uh, start talking, getting into it. Should I start? I'd love that. Okay, hi. Um, I'm Bhakti Pavanantharan. I actually forgot my name for a second there. Um, I'm the... Uh, editor of ABC Every Day, which is a vertical, a features vertical within the ABC that covers topics like well-being, sex and relationships, family, uh, food, and so many parts of our identities. Um, and I am also a mum to a one-year-old. There we are. So, Shelley, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Shelley Parker-Chan. Um, I'm an author. I write fantasy books, which um, I've only written two so far, um, of which only one is out. But it's a queer reimagining of the life of the founding emperor of the Ming Dynasty. So it's set in 14th century China. It's full of terrible gays, a lot of murder. Um, it's based on those like Chinese and Korean Netflix dramas that you can see. So it's meant to be just a really good time and not too serious. And that's what I do. Hi everyone, I'm Michelle Cheng. Uh, I'm from SBS in the TV and online content division. Uh, so I'm the content industry diversity manager, which means every uh, show that we make on SBS with production companies or in-house, uh, I'm looking at the cast and the crew and thinking about how do we get more people from a variety of cultural backgrounds, First Nations people, people with disability, uh, the queer community and women uh, on and behind our cameras. And I'm Andrew from EST. Let's play the trailer one more time. No, not at all. <laughs> so I guess as a first kind of jumping off question, what initially drew each of you to become a part of the process of storytelling in your own ways? I guess we can start, we'll go backwards. We'll start with Michelle. Uh, well, I didn't start sort of in a um, storytelling kind of uh, role. So I, I actually trained as a lawyer uh, after I did my arts degree. Um, and I started as a journalist. For me, it was um, 
I just want to see more of the world and understand what people are thinking and feeling, what drives them uh, and their perspectives. Um, I, I too did not start out as a storyteller. I studied engineering and then I became a diplomat and I kind of sucked at all of those. Um, but I guess the thing about being a diplomat is you, I got exposed to a lot of interesting countries at very interesting times in their histories. I lived in Timor-Leste um, about 10 years after independence when it was still a very fragile place. And what was really interesting to me was a lot of the um, guerrilla leaders and rebels had just moved into positions in government. So you really got this like fascinating insight into personality and how the kind of personalities that are great when you're a rebel leader are terrible for running a country. So I was like, I want to write a book about people being terrible at having power and running countries. And, you know, also what kind of personality does it take um, to imagine yourself like running the world in the case of like Chinese emperors back in the 14th century. Um, and more than that, I was attracted to the idea of like, I just couldn't find any stories that had all Asians and were very gay and just like really portrayed um, Asian people in all their like humanity. Like, you know, when we saw an Asian face in the media, it was like the villain, like this nameless, faceless bad guy who was just there to die for the sake of like a white Marvel superhero. So I was like, you know, I just want everyone to be Asian and then everyone gets to be a hero or a villain. They're all gay and it's gonna be amazing and no one can stop me. And so uh, somehow they paid me to do it, so it's great. Um, I came here when I was four uh, because of the civil war in Sri Lanka. My, that's why my family came here and I grew up listening to um, my family talk about that impact that it had on them but also um, it just desperately curious about wh what had happened and staying in touch with um, the Tamil liberation movement in Sri Lanka, I became a journalist because I was outraged um, by the the oppression of my people. Um, and as I kind of developed that, I realised that, you know, writing was the best way for me to express that. Uh, writing and radio were the two things that I loved the most. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what drew me to it. And then I kind of did, uh, I did a very classic route into journalism. I was the editor of my student paper. I studied media and yeah. Well, I think that's so, I think that's so interesting and amazing. I guess like my next question for everyone, what was like the, I guess like what was the period like between entering the industries you, you're all in? compared to telling the stories you want to tell? Like, was there, like, a lot of, like, learning, gatekeeping you had to kind of get past? Like, what was that process like? We'll start. Uh, yeah, I can go again. Um, <laughs> for me, it took a really long time. So I, I've been in the industry now for nearly 13, 14 years. It took, I would say, really only the last four or five years where – I felt like I wasn't p pushing uphill to um, tell the stories that I like that I didn't have to prove that those stories are necessary. Um, and it's certainly when I was at C 
certain outlets that will be unnamed. When I was pitching stories about my community, the fact that I was from that community was seen as a liability. It was seen as a bias um, that I could not be objective about my community. And, you know, then there's the assumption that objectivity is the point of journalism, which I I don't think anyone is objective. Um, So... There was a lot of gatekeeping but also a lot of shame that I felt um, as a young person just uh, when you have a story knocked back in a competitive place like a newsroom, you just kind of go, well, I'm going to do something safe because I'm going to do what is going to get me the next contract because I was on short-term contracts, you know, all of those layers of um, insecurity meant that until I really came to the ABC, I felt like I had to hide or justify wanting to tell those. Yeah, I think um, when you said we don't have the luxury to do that, that kind of resonates with me because about oh, the previous generation of writers before me, and a generation of writers is only five years long, so like 10 years ago, there were Asian writers who could not write Asian stories. They just wrote about white people set in America, and that's all you could sell. Uh, Asian stories were seen as too niche. And then I came along about, you know, five years ago, and what I faced was a situation of there were some Asian stories, uh, but you could only have one per publisher. So I was writing my book, and then this wunderkind called R.F. Kuang wrote this amazing series called The Poppy War, which is, you know, set it, it's a girl protagonist who's based on Mao, so she's, like, terrible. And it's kind of, like, got really Song Dynasty aesthetics. It's amazing. Uh, very historically based. Anyway, it's very similar to my book. And when I saw the announcement, I just cried because I knew that no one would buy my book because there could only be one. Um, and for sure, when I was looking for an agent, looking for editors, people were like, oh, well, we already kind of have a book like that. Um, I'm like, you have an infinite number of books like about like rapey European-style fantasies and you can't have two Asian fantasies at the one imprint. But times have changed. In the last four or five years, the floodgates have opened. Uh, in part because books like um, by those forerunners did well. There was an appetite for it. But by God, we had to like prove that. Like no one ever gave us the benefit of the doubt. And to be the first is so hard. Those people really had to push uphill in an industry that had no idea about Chinese, Asian stories. Um, And then they would say, oh, well, nothing has come before, so we can't tell if your book will sell. There's nothing to compare it to. Um, Yeah, and then... So we we just kind of had to do it. It took one person to break out. They did, and then all of us can kind of stand on her shoulders, so that's great. Um, publishing really tried to set us against each other. I think with that, there can only be one. So there's that sense of the scarcity mindset, the competition that they really try and engender. But what I have found is that the Asians are so few that they'll automatically extend a hand down to the other Asians. It's been really nice in that. Sort of like, oh, I see you're coming up. You're a debut author. I'll blurb your book. I'll read your book. I'm really excited. Like in all of Australia last uh, this year, in 2023, there's only three... Asian Australian authored young adult books coming out. The three. I know all these three people. You know, it's <laughs> so I'm like, oh my friends, hi. I'll help you. I would describe my career as quite opportunistic and random. Um so um I think the problem with um media careers like journalism or in TV is 
you don't see ads on seek.com.au, well, particularly for like if you want to work in production as a writer, director, producer. So it's very um, mysterious. Um, so my family is Chinese Malaysian. My parents came here in the 80s and we don't really have anyone in media or these kind of sexy professions in our family. Um, so I, I think it was just quite random. So for instance, the way I got into the, um, the TV industry was I had had a really bad year. I got fired from four jobs and I was unemployed watching daytime TV. And I've, I've always loved quiz shows because I'm quite nerdy. Um, so I saw The Chase Australia and I thought, oh, I bet I could apply for that as a contestant. So I ended up getting on. And yeah, randomly I won some money. And then um, I, I got onto the production company's uh, radar. So they called me um, to audition to become a presenter on a quiz show. And, and before that, I became a writer on The Chase. Um, and, and simply that was because I just asked the producer, I said, who writes these questions and how do you get that job? And they were like, oh, just do this test, just give it a crack. And um, that, that, that's how I got in there. Um, once again, with this job at SBS, um, it didn't exist in the Australian industry at the time. I think in, in some ways TV is a really strange industry because um, as a consumer or a viewer at home, I think there's not much visibility about how television is made, right? Um, so with that, I was really interested in sort of the issue, having worked a little bit as a writer and a presenter. Uh, so I joined all these like Facebook groups about diversity in media and I saw a, like a job ad and yeah, anyway, I applied. So I got my job from Facebook. Um, so <laughs> so I, I would say um, now when I sort of look around, um, I, I, I'm in my 30s, but I think there's so much more opportunity for people who, um, you know, don't fit the standard mould of what, you know, society has told you an Aussie looks like and such. Um, and even, you know, now when you uh, turn on TV, you can see so many dramas about different um, Asian Australian communities. And I, I know at SBS it's something that we're really... Um, looking for a lot of new stories and especially in, in, in drama and TV, we're coming to this point where so many stories have been told. So perhaps if you have an element of cultural diversity or you're um, from a community that's not traditionally been represented, it, it is more of an attractive proposition because it's new and interesting. Well, I think we touched on a bunch of points there, which is amazing. But I guess my next question, one thing that kind of touched on me that, like Shelley, you were saying that there wasn't, there's not a lot of, Asian writers. It's like, you know, the other three, right? Um, do you find that at the level of success that you're all at, that there's a lot of other Asian or people of color that are kind of at your same level? And if not, why do you think that isn't? Uh, maybe we'll start with Shelley. We'll break up this metronome system we have going here. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, I think I'm part of the... Asians who have gone overseas to seek success that wasn't possible in the Australian market. I think you see this with a lot of actors. Um, I see Asian faces pop up on American TV shows and then I'll like Google them because they're hot or whatever and they're like, oh, it's a guy from Melbourne, God. Um, and in writing, I think it was quite similar. I don't think I could have sold this book in Australia. The market was too small and Australian publishing is just super, super white. But what has happened uh, in the last 10 years is this like uh, revolution in communications just means that I could access the US market, which is massive and is interested in Asian stories. And the US market at the moment is really receptive to uh, genre books by diverse voices. I just happened across at the time when that market is flourishing. 
and the ability to connect to other Asians, the Sino diaspora, like obviously there are a lot of differences. Uh, Asian Americans have a very different like immigration patterns. Um, they are placing themselves uh, in respect to whiteness, and you know whiteness in America is constructed you know on the back of chattel slavery and blackness, and we don't have that here. So their experience is not the same as mine, but there are enough similarities where I can like find an Asian American author and be like, hey, we have stuff in common. Um, and there are actually quite a lot of them now. Um, and sort of drawing together, I have heard people say Asian fantasy is a trend that's going to be over soon, but I really don't think that's true. I think it's just a, a hunger for people to see themselves represented. Um, but I had to go overseas to get that, and that's really sad. I really want that to happen here in Australia. Um, I don't know what we can do to kind of push publishing to change. It is a matter of gatekeepers, and, you know, I think they have to open their eyes and see that there is interest in um, a diversity of stories. It's not just white lady book clubs. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no solutions. Just <laughs> ranting. Yeah. Well, I guess, like, for Michelle and Bhakti, do you find that that same thing in terms of like, because I mean, Michelle, I know that a part of your job is also trying to see the trends in the UK and US for diversity and replicate it within the Australian media industry. So do you find that that's a big part of your roles in media, the both of you? Yeah, um, I, I suppose I can sort of speak to the screen sector, but um, when, when I first started this job, I started making connections with people. Oh, hello, Will. Yeah. <laughs> um, from the, uh, the UK network. So we're talking like ITV, Channel 4, BBC, uh, plus our friends in New Zealand, um, Canada, America. And when we look at sort of the TV industry, they're probably about, I'd say like six years ahead of us. Um, so for, like, I'll give you an example. So Channel 4, which is based, uh, it's like basically British SBS, uh, if you want to think about it. Um, they have had diversity and inclusion targets for their cast, crew, and um, also sort of internally um, for like two times three years. And you can see the place where they're at is because they've done the, I, I guess you could say the not sexy stuff, like setting targets, putting it into their systems. Um, they've been able to um, build up a lot more critical mass. Whereas I think if we look in the Australian TV industry, I think for various cultural reasons, also in terms of the regulatory environment, um, we don't feel comfortable talking about racism, right? Like you, we don't have that um, ability to speak as, as Australians about race, about cultural... Um, cultural representation and that sort of thing. I think people still want to talk about, um, oh, you know, from the Al Grasby, oh, um, you know, we have the most multicultural nation in the world, So, we, but when it comes to the systemic problems, no one wants to acknowledge that. So I think one of the biggest barriers to change in TV is, um, I suppose you could say, uh, outdated mindsets for decision makers. Uh, and I, th I think it's a tough one because you need someone to go out on a limb to sort of present a bigger, a bigger vision for Australia and to not sort of uh, accept where we are because I, I guess with, you know, TV budgets and that sort of thing, um, the, the, the excuse is, oh, we don't want to take a risk on new talent, on new stories, uh, that sort of thing. So those are the barriers that are stopping us right now. Um, you asked before about decision, being a decision maker and a gatekeeper, which I am now, and the transition from being a reporter slash cr like producer on my own to then being in charge of teams. Um, I absolutely 
like what our team at Every Day is really diverse in the senior leadership. Like all of us are from culturally, uh, linguistically different backgrounds, but the level above, like the level above my team, like so my level at the ABC is still extremely white. Um, but that's something that, you know, that they're working on. I think what I had to overcome is actually shifting the like a little old white lady in me that I was taught that's who to write for. Um, It took a long time to think about my peers as my audience uh, and and it it took like being part of such a project as every day where explicitly the audience is, you know, people between 18 and 30 or 40 who are – from who are mainly women and mainly looking at all kinds of diversity. Queer, you know, we do a lot of queer storytelling. We do a lot of, but we do a lot of queer and Asian storytelling or queer and Indigenous storytelling because, you know, obviously it's never just one for a lot of people. Um, but it, you know, I, I think the way that gatekeepers are trained it sticks with them for a long time and I just want to reflect on the fact that it took a long time for me to detrain that part of the way that I commission. And I guess going off from that, how have you kind of seen, I guess, like juniors or younger generations of now, like journalists and creators and storytellers, have they, do they is that like, are they even aware of that kind of the issues on the upper echelon or like of that or are they now just, are they is like this kind of diverse set of storytelling just kind of now like the norm for them, I guess? No, ab- yeah, absolutely they're aware because they receive a lot of feedback from audiences and some of it is really, you know, exciting, great feedback from the audience that they it was for, but especially at the ABC, when we create content that's not for a certain demographic, like the classic ABC viewer is like someone who lives in Glen Iris and drives a BMW, if you're making content for like not that person, they will write to us and say, well, why did you make this? <laughs> so, so my, my team know that they're, what they're, you know, what they're doing is uh, not for everyone, but they also know that I've got their back. So yeah, I think it's a process. That's amazing. That kind of trust to know that someone above you has your back and supports you and and encourages you that you're doing the right thing, I think is so important, especially when you have people below you who are just trying to find their way and figure stuff out. Um, so I guess we'll go back to Shelley, but we'll, this is a question for everybody. I'm trying to break up the flow just because it's very easy to go like one, two. <laughs> um, what do you feel is the power of having stories told in the voice of the characters, and I guess for media subjects that are directly involved in the stories? I guess the one thing that I've always tried to do in my storytelling is really portray full human beings and all their complexity. And that means pushing back against stereotypes, even positive stereotypes. So there is this amazing book. You probably have heard of it because I won like a Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago. It's The Sympathizer um, by uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen. It's an incredible book about uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, I found it so hard to read. It is incredibly difficult to read. It is so brutal and harrowing, but incredible in the way that it pushes back against the stereotype of 
the refugee, you know, um, this very positive but very flattening stereotype of like, oh, these poor people who are fleeing war in their country and they've come to America. And what you see in the backstory is this well-developed, incredible, complex, flawed, terrible human being who is that same refugee who's lived a whole life in Vietnam um, and then, you know, comes to America and continues on as that same human being, but then is like flattened by the perceptions of everyone around him, which he could then play with. Um, but it's an incredible work. And yeah, what I enjoyed is it really just pushes back. It's like, no, this person is a person. You know, you don't get to call them just a refugee or whatever. And, you know, often these people are terrible people. Um, you know, so like in the immigrant community, I think maybe many of us have known like elders in our community uh, can sometimes do this thing of showing one face to the white people around because they've had to, to survive, and then another face within the home. Like, for instance, my grandfather did not speak a word of English, only Cantonese. It was like, oh, what a gentle, wonderful, you know, harmless little man, right? Like, this guy was a fucking patriarchal tiger, you know, in the home. And maybe he even, like, asserted that masculinity much more dominantly because of how he is treated by the world around. So I think that's what you can explore when you're coming from within that society. You're really just seeing the, the rounded person and pushing back against the stereotype. Yeah, I think we're living in a time where that's allowed to happen, but it's very, very new yes. that that's been allowed to happen. And again, even for me, I think that I've seen a shift where, you know, I can write a story about how fucked up something is in my community and not feel like my job is to make my community look good to a white audience like my job is actually to tell the truth as I see it um, and that means yes there is patriarchy yes there is um, dowries yes there is you know really awful um, queer phobia there's, there's so many layers within our communities that we can't hold you know our elders or our um, even um, like peers to account because we're trying to kind of tread to Two paths at once. Yeah, you don't want to shame your community, especially when you're pushing back against Islamophobia or Sinophobia or whatever. You kind of feel protective, right? You don't want to air your dirty laundry in front of everyone for the same time. Or when you do, it's your own community can come for you. How dare you portray us in such a terrible light? It's like, but it's true. Like, yeah, yeah, but don't say it to the white people. <laughs> well, I guess like, um, I guess along those lines, like, do you each, what's up, Michelle? I'm going to set that right now. <laughs> but do you feel a pressure in terms of like getting representation right or whatever that whatever that means in terms of like what what does what can, that can mean? Um, yeah, I, I feel immense pressure. I mean, um, sort of back to your question about uh, how many um, you know people from your background are in your industry. I think we're coming to a point where there's a lot more commissioning editors, uh, people at screen funding agencies who are people of colour, people of various diversity. Um, but for me, uh, working at SBS as a corporate shill in the TV and online community, um, I'm sort of in an insider-outsider position and it causes a lot of tension and difficulty uh, for myself and other people in that position, right? Because I'm, uh, you know, a Chinese-Malaysian woman, I'm in a gatekeeping position and I have a lot of empathy for people who are creators on the ground who are frustrated by the systems and the barriers that be. Yet I do have a loyalty uh, to my employer and I am part of a system. So there's immense pressure on you to 
align yourselves with the creators, which you do feel personally, but then because your job is in this institution every day, there's, there's also pressure to, I guess, toe the line or to... Um, stick to a budget. Stick to a budget. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you, you would know, Bhakti, yeah. Do you feel the same? Yeah, and, you know, I get pictures all the time from people who, if I had an endless budget, I would bring on board and train and spend time, you know, um, building their skills, but there's there's just a limited resource there, right? So, um, you do what you can. But what, there, was that the initial question? Was there... What was the... I think the question spiraled yeah. and evolved. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess like, yeah, the initial question was, um, let me have a quick think. Oh, it was um, the importance of stories being told through the voices and subjects of the people that are actually in the story as opposed to like someone from the outside. Yeah, so I think what you get is detail. That, that, and detail is and specificity that you can't get if you're not living that, um, if you're not immersed in it, it just it just doesn't ring as true. And obviously, as a fiction writer, that's what you're going for. But the the more um, the more you can give someone of uh, the in, you know the inflection of a fight that you're portraying, for example, or a disagreement, that's going to be different if you know, you can pick up on the cultural intricacies of like a, a conversation that people are having or an argument they're having. And you know that that particular word, like it can be language-based, that particular word is actually quite cruel. You might not know that if you don't, you're not a language speaker or you might not know that someone is, you know, you, you might not know the etiquette, you might not know um, the history there's just so many layers that you're going to miss and it's it's honestly very embarrassing when you see like so not to name call not to call it someone out but Peter Harcher <laughs> is a columnist in international affairs who regularly uses motifs from asian culture in his um, writing about international affairs, he'll be like, this problem is like the seven-headed god Shiva. And you're like, what? That's not accurate. And also, why? And and also, we're talking about Indonesia, not India. Like, what are you doing? And it's so ham-fisted that you can't get to the point because as a reader, you get stuck on those inaccuracies. And so that's why detail and specificity is just so crucial to what I do as an editor. Like I, I and obviously I don't have all the experts and, and sensitivity reads are crucial in that regard as well, I think. Imagine if we brought him out and just, and just, and just roasted him. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> um, it's like an now broader question, but when we're talking about Australia and Australian media and Australian industries, why do you think Australia has an issue with what an Aussie looks like? I guess we'll start. <laughs> okay. All right, back to me. Um, uh, well, sort of going to that point, I think, uh, especially in TV, we have such a responsibility, right? Because I mean, it seems like more or less everyone has a TV in Australia. Um, so every image, every piece of narrative, every representation of someone 
um, of a person, say, from an underrepresented community is really incredibly powerful because it sets the norm of what people think a Chinese person is like. For instance, um, what was the question? I just got on my soapbox. Yeah. Why do we think Australia has an issue with what an Aussie looks like? Oh, right. I think it's a gatekeeper thing, isn't it? Right? Because um, sort of, you know, what Bhakti was saying, if you look at... Um, uh, well, you can go on the About Us website <laughs> of uh, all the, the networks. Still, the um, the sort of top levels of decision makers um, in, I, I can say, the TV and screen industry are pretty much white people, right? So, I guess we're all a product of our environment and our tastes. So, I, I recently read this book um, called Access All Areas, a TV diversity manifesto um, by Lenny Henry and Marcus Ryder. They're leading diversity advocates in the UK. And they sort of gave this example of, say, you're a person of colour and you join... I don't know, the BBC or some establishment, that thing like that. You might have your own tastes in music, um, how you speak, but in order to fit in and gain credibility with your superiors, you might start listening to classical music. You might change yourself and because you're code switching on the regular, it changes your sense of identity. So it means that we all sort of get absorbed into this dominant narrative of what an Australian looks like. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's very complex, but I think that's what we're trying to do at SPS um, is really challenge that because I find it so eerie that if I catch the train, the Pakenham line, I could literally hear, I don't know, like five, six languages. But then when I turn on TV, it doesn't look like that at all. It's very strange. It's like, am I watching Sky News? Uh, no, <laughs> no offense, Sky News. Um, but uh, something that we are looking at... Um, is also, um, I, th I think as a viewer, you know, you watch what's on TV, but we're thinking about like who's making the shots behind the scenes, right? So for example, like if we, uh, we now have these diversity targets for our dramas and also for our food factual entertainment. Uh, I'll, I'll talk you through the drama ones because we've been told, oh, they're very ambitious, you won't meet them, but just try it anyway. Um, so now when we look at the on-screen um, sort of ensemble on our dramas, we need two of the, f the, the main characters to be First Nations or culturally and linguistically diverse. That's just an end of story. And a, about a third has to be um, from our other target communities as well. Uh, and I think the one that will be a big game changer for us is um, in our off-screen roles. So we're talking writer, director, producer. Now if a show is about a particular community, uh, so let's say it's about people with disability, like our recent show Latecomers, two of the key roles in the writer's room have to be people from that community plus either the director or the producer. So the, the, the logic for that is, at least on a show, if you're seeing people from a community on screen, the representation, um, the understanding of what's um, being shown and, and coming into the, sort of the, uh, the, uh, the world as, as a source of truth is, is informed by lived experience, right? And we want to have at least three because if there's just one of you, it's really hard to speak up. Um, and sort of going back to your question, Andrew, like when I started as a journalist, um, there was a time when I was working uh, as at ABC and the Daily Mail at the same time. <laughs> it was really weird. But um, I was pretty much the only one, one or two pe persons of colour in the whole newsrooms for both of them. And everyone was like really nice. But once again, it's uh, when you're not from a, like a posh private school, you didn't grow up... Um, Anglo-Saxon, you don't know how to fit in and you don't feel like you can take those risks or stand out. So I think it just comes back to authenticity. Shelley? <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard one to follow. Um, uh, okay. I think the, the conflation of Anglo-ness to Australian-ness is so pervasive and problematic. Um, to bring the tone down on Twitter the other day, um, which is where I get all my news, even though it's currently broken. 
Um, there was this amazing rant by this guy. So I'm just going to assume he's a guy because it was full of pent-up rage. So I think he was from Europe and he'd been in Australia for about 15 years and he just went on a tear dissected, eviscerating Australian culture. He was like, they are the most ungenerous people in the world. Um, <laughs> you have a barbecue and people will bring their own six pack and if they don't drink all of it, they'll take it home. And you know, the men are standing at the grill and they're bitching about the missus. And it's like the 1950s. Um, you know, and I was like, well, you're not wrong. But also, clearly you have not met, you've only met white Australians. And he was just like, Australia is terrible. Australian culture is terrible. Like, no, 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 no. This is Anglo-Australian culture. And it was just really interesting to me that e the ease of conflation with which that happened. Um, and my own family does it too. They're like, oh, those lazy damn Aussies. You know, I'm like, excuse me, I'm an Australian. Um... Yeah, but that way that um, <laughs> whiteness in Australia is not marked, it is the default. And you see that in fiction all the time, you know, whiteness is the default. But Australians won't even say the word white, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, I hate how every story that features Asians in it in Australia is often just really about Asianness. You know, I'm like, oh, let's just have a story that's about Asians incidentally going about their lives, having a romance or being in a thriller or like, you know, being in, I don't know, international espionage or something. That's not always about the angst of the Asian experience. Um, for instance, I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, the show Never Have I Ever, which is an amazing Desi American show. Um, it's so sweet. It's... Uh, for a young adult audience, I would say, but it's about an Indian American girl and she's in a high school and she has all the normal high school experiences. Um, and she also struggles with the one other brown girl in the class. Oh, she does. <laughs> but I like how, like, her humanness is centered. Like, you know, she is obviously Indian and all, and so much of her life is inflected by that, but it's not all about It's about her being a high school girl who is also Indian, but it's not like, here are the struggles of a second generation immigrant, you know, in a high school in America. I felt it struck that balance and that's what I really enjoyed seeing. And I think I'm still looking for that in a lot of Australian fiction. You know, there is, it's like the gatekeepers sometimes like an Asian hardship story, like no shade on the Asian hardship story. I read a lot of them, um, but you know, there are other experiences out there that I'd like to explore. Um, I want to make a couple of points. One is um, someone I think who does this beautifully is Alice Pung. Mm. Uh, I think she uh, – her stories are so Australian to me. They are kind of this – like the way she talks about the landscape of the western suburbs of Melbourne. They just ooze kind of um, – they, they, they make me feel nostalgic for ne like the times that she's writing about, which is – kind of around the time. I think we're probably similar age and when she was younger. Um, but the second point I want to make is that I don't feel super Australian and I think part of what's tricky about this is that, you know, especially at the ABC, we're trying to represent the regions and the cities and all the cities are really different. All the, you know, I, I, I feel like much more of a Melbourneian than I do an Australian, for example. And I think if you thought about um, identity that way, if we had more media that was city-based, that would be interesting. Um, if we had more regional media, that would be better. That's not to say that regional areas are white. There are lots of, obviously, 
uh, obviously indigenous communities in the regions, but also there are lots of migrant communities in the, in the regions. It's it's really hard to I think pin down an Australianness because of our diversity as a, like a physical space um, and culturally you go from St Kilda to Preston, it's different, right? So how do you how do you pin that down? But um, also on, on the kind of um, screen stuff, I think things that I love seeing and I'm so glad to hear about these quotas is like Adam Leo and Poe get to have a show together. Yeah. They don't have to be the only Asian in the show. That's that's the Melbourne I know where two Asian people hang out together. <laughs> like they don't have, they don't have to be one Asian and one Indian and one white person and like one Greek person and like like it, they can actually just exist. Well, it's not Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Only one can survive. Before we wrap up and ask our last question, I just want to give a quick shout out actually to Michelle because you also work for the SDIN, the Screen Diversity Inclusivity Network. Yeah. And there was an amazing report called Everyone Counts, which if everyone has time later, make sure to check it out because it is a really amazing report. That, thank you so much, Andrew. Um, Andrew's read it. My mum's read it. <laughs> so that's, that's about it. Um, so, uh, you know, when I'm not at SBS, I co-chair the Screen Diversity Inclusion Network with uh, Kelrick Martin, who's the head of Indigenous at ABC. You probably don't know about it because we're not like social media wizards, not very good at publicity, but um, essentially we're a network of 23 of the broadcasters, screen funders and all of the industry guilds. So from 7, 9, 10, ABC, SBS, Screen Australia, um, all the way to the Producers Guild. Um, so we were started a few years ago by um, Afters, which is the film school in Sydney. Um, and essentially um, the CEO at the time was really inspired by what was happening in the UK um, for diversity. And he was like, why isn't this happening here? So, so we brought all these CEO mates together and, and that established that. So there's two main things we focus on. So every year uh, for the production sector, we run the SGI and Diversity Awards. So it's what it sounds like. So a TV show or a production company that's really um, pushing representation forward um, is awarded. And last year here out west from ABC One, shout out to ABC. Um, and the other thing we do is data collection because uh, it's not sexy, but we know that... Um, to move the, you know, the minds of the decision makers, you need some hard data or some sort of ramifications uh, for why diversity is important, right? Uh, so last year, um, through, through the collective efforts of our members, we published the first ever report on diversity in Australia's film and TV industry. So um, basically we captured information from like self, um, self-identified surveys um, of almost 3,000 cast and crew across 70 productions in Australia. So we, we, the findings were what we sort of expected. So for example, people with disability are underrepresented across all roles. Um, and also um, for the Asian Australian community, while we're about 18.2% of the population at the time of the report, only 9% are, we were only represented at about 9%. So for us, we plan to do that every year. It's a bit of a health check. Um, and it, it makes it a bit undeniable uh, that there are issues that can't be swept under the rug. Um. So the last question before we wrap up, we could talk all night. Um, but I guess a nice specific question to wrap things up. What does the future of Asian representation look like in Australia? We'll keep it simple. We'll go this way. <laughs> okay, we'd like to start. I think it looks like more Asian Australians being able to be perceived as 
things other than Asian. So being able to be perceived as funny or sexy or stupid or villainous or annoying, whatever they actually are beyond their language group and, you know, racial identity. Yeah, Chrislyn. <laughs> um, I think I'm, I'm excited for the future. I'm interested in seeing the influence of Sourceland media coming to Australia. For instance, I have a 10-year-old, so I heard a lot about the fact that Stray Kids was recently in Sydney, the K-pop group. And I'm like, oh, even the 10-year-olds are into K-pop these days. I remember when it was only the old people. Um, you know, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. I also remember when no white Australian would know a single thing about Asian entertainment. Um, now we have Netflix and all the Asian shows are on Netflix and I know a lot of non-Asians who are just obsessed. Um, so I think Sourceland Media has a lot to offer us um, in terms of different modes of storytelling, different modes of gender expression, which I know is attractive to a lot of people I've spoken with. Um, yeah, so I think we'll see more of that creeping in and especially as global mobility comes back after COVID, you know, people are travelling back and forth and we can access media much more readily than we could in the old days. So I'm excited to see how that will build into diaspora storytelling, how that will absorb some of that and create new things out of it that are still authentic to us, uh, perhaps, um, but not we don't have to feel as beholden to Western modes of storytelling, for instance, as the default. I would say for TV, for um, Asian representation, would be freedom to be an asshole. Um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is, um, you know, in theory, if we have enough writers, directors, producers from that background, we will be more fearless and be able to write more human characters that are Asian, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm an asshole sometimes. Maybe I want to be represented. Um, also, I'm um, sort of what Bucky was saying. Um, that Asian representation won't be a thing. It will just be a common sense um, kind of thing, you know, like, why not? Uh, so that's, I, I hope, where we get to. So we really mainstream representation of people from different communities. I hope so too. Um, everyone, give it a big round of applause to our amazing panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew, for modding. That's okay. <laughs> You're listening to an Empavillion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.